Good morning. And welcome to worship here. It is Sunday, September 4th here at Springfield Church of the Brethren, and I guess just about everywhere else until you get to the international dateline. Welcome everyone who is, is joining us here in person. Welcome to those who are joining us online. We are so glad to have you all here. Our scriptures today come from Exodus 20, 4 through 6, as well as Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 7. Feel free to follow along in your hymnal, I mean hymnal, Bible from your pew, or if you brought one from home, if you like, the pages are up on the screen. Exodus 24 and 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol in any form, a form of anything in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. Of those who hate me, but, some, uh, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. From Deuteronomy 20. I'm going to go back. I'm, I'm Yeah. <laughs> Uh, sorry, uh, Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 7. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offering, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything. You have put your hand, uh, everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Blessed is the word. No, amen. So, so I almost thought about just skipping this one, because to be fair, it was only like a month ago, maybe a month ago, this, like a month, Sunday, a month, ay, 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 a Sunday of, no. A month, I anyway, it was about a month ago, it was like the first Sunday of August where I did a, where we did the creation story and I talked about one of the ways that this, this commandment works out is, is the, the reason we don't create images of God is because we all are images of God. We are reflections of the creator that we, and I went on and I talked about how, how it's reflections you know, it, it did some really interesting things. It broke down social barriers. It was a way of fighting against the way that everyone else did things. Instead of there being a king who was above everyone and then nobles and so on and so forth going down, that no, everybody is a reflection of God, not just the king. And how, how as reflections we are called to be gardeners, both the literal gardeners, you know, those who go out and, and tend to the earth, 
but also metaphorical gardeners, those who look out over the world and see the way the world is and then work with it to make it grow into ever greater forms. So I'm not going to rehash all of that again. I think that was a pretty good one-paragraph summarization of that, of that sermon. Anyway, and then I kind of forgot where I was going to go after that. Anyway, so instead, I talk a little different direction with idols. And actually, I'm going to a different story. This one comes out of 1 Samuel. It takes place during the days of Eli. Now, Eli was the high priest and apparently was a fairly, I don't want to say he was a terrible dad. He was a hands-off dad. By the way, this is the, the same Eli who was the high priest that Samuel served under. You know, the Samuel, Samuel, and what is it? And it wasn't me. Go back to bed. That Eli. Anyway, so Eli has two sons. These men served as the priests. And when Eli dies, which will eventually happen, then one of them will become the high priest. And if they die and don't have sons yet, then one of them becomes the high priest. The other one, so on and so forth. Now, as high priests, their job, much like modern-day pastors are supposed to do, they are servants of the people. They aren't being served by the people, but they are servants to the people. And, but they did have certain perks. Like they got a portion of everyone's tithes and offerings. That was how the priesthood supported itself. Such as there was meat. So back in the far back day, this kind of goes in that Deuteronomy passage. Whenever you wanted to eat an animal, which wouldn't be every day. It wasn't like meat was on the menu every single day. Um, instead, it was every once in a while, and you would take that animal to the tabernacle where the priest would do the, well, the slaughter, and then part of the animal, certain parts, would then be given to, to God, and part of it would be given to the priest, and the remaining bit went to the family who brought it. So you, if you think about it, you, you are taking a life. And this is a way of thanking and giving part back of that life to God. So they would throw bits of meat into a pot. And the priest got to pick out whatever piece they could jab with a fork. So a big pot going, bits of meat in there. You got a fork and you, you jab it in. And whatever you got is what you got. Maybe it was a great cut. Maybe it was not a great cut. Some days you got the filet mignon. Some days you got the butt. To be fair, if it's in a big pot and a stew, the butt's just as good. Anyway. Well, they didn't do that. These guys took the choice cuts of meat before it went in. They took some of God's portion. They did other things as well. They were fleecing people. They were lining their pockets. God did not like these guys. And Eli, who knew this was happening, chose to do nothing. He did not, as high priest and as a father, chastise his sons and let them continue to fleece the people and to steal from God. Well, there was a battle. 
And as was customary in the battles of those times, the priests were a part of the battles. And they, as the high priest family, decided that they were going to give their side an upper edge against these Philistines. So they went and got the Ark of the Covenant. They put it on its poles and they marched it out to battle. Apparently, this works most of the time. You know, it, it provides the people of Israel some extra little bit of power, something extra, some luck, something. Never really told exactly how it works, but it works. Except, of course, God's angry at them. So God decides, eh, today, not do feeling this. And so the two men die. The two sons die. Eli dies soon after when he hears the news. He falls over and, and cracks his head. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken captive. The Ark of the Covenant is taken captive. This is the holy box. This is the box in which the commandments were set. Inside of it is some quail and some manna. Inside of it is Aaron's staff that was made to bud and flower. This is God's throne. Now, the, now the, the Ark of the Covenant is not an idol. We've got to make this really hard distinction because it's hard to make it in today's world because we don't have, quote-unquote, idols. Like, American Idol, it's not the same kind of idol that was back then. <laughs> Completely different. I actually haven't watched American Idol myself. I have really no idea. I just... It's been around long enough, I know what it is. Anyway. No, an idol is a physical manifestation of a divine being here on earth. It is both part of a god, the embodiment of a god, but still separate. These are kind of hard lines to kind of wrap our, our minds around but you should treat an idol as if it was actually a living being, a, a living, powerful, scary being. But the Ark of the Covenant was not that. You did not direct your worship to it. It was not the manifestation of God on earth. It was the manifestation of the covenant. Because that's what it held within it. It held the law. It held the covenant with inside of it. And it acted as the throne of God, as a seat. It was the connection point between the divine and the mundane. It was the connection point between God and God's chosen people. And fittingly enough, how, what was that connection? What was the base of that connection? It was the covenant that it held within it. Think of it more like a lockbox that holds, you know, the articles of corporation for a business. You know, it's not really sacred, but they're super important. You don't want to mess with those. You don't want to lose those. You may need them someday. I hope I'm getting that right. I'm not a business person. But that's not how the Philistines looked at it. For them, it was just an idol. It was a weird idol, to be sure. 
It was an idol with no image on it. It was an idol to a box-shaped god. But it didn't really matter to them. They did as anyone in those days tended to do when you captured someone else's god. You brought it to your god. That's what you did. See, they all believed in, in that, you know, that there were many gods in this world. And some said, you know, well, my God is greater than your God. You know, I, I believe in Athena, who is far greater than Ares, that kind of thing. So they brought the God of Israel before their God, Dagon. Now, what this is showing is, one, my God is greater than this God. Two, the God of Israel is now a subservient God to Dagon. You know, the, he's now a servant of a kind. He is now, you know, I mean, he's the, you know, Dagon was the God of, of wheats and harvests. And this God, this, this Israelite God, a God of thunderstorms. It's actually one of the names we have for God is El. That's one of the names they use for God in the Bible. And El is is. It refers to thunderstorms and whatnot. So, you know, this God of thunderstorms of Israel, they are. It's a lesser God. That was a bad thing for Israel, or a bad thing generally for people who believed in idols. Not only were you losing your idol, your manifestation of God, you were, you were, losing, you were losing their divine protection. You were losing your blessings that you got from them. Imagine that. Imagine the idea that someone could come in here and say, conquer this church and take away its Bible and take it to their own church. And now, now we have all lost our connection with God. That's really hard to wrap our minds around because we just don't work that way anymore, right? But that's what they really believed. This is why idols tended to be really like stapled into things, like stakes driven down through, like, through them so that they could not easily be moved or they'd be tethered. Or whenever an enemy was around, you would hide them. Most houses had little shrines with little gods on them. They weren't just the, the main gods. Like, you know, if you're a Philistine, you'd have Dagon. But you might have, you know, your ancestral gods, your familial gods, or your pictures of your ancestors. And they gave you blessings as well. If you were conquered, they were taken. And now you've lost all of that. But God, God knew this and understood this and said, you know, you guys don't need idols. Idols don't do a thing. The problem is with idols is you can have idols taken away. This will never be taken away. The covenant is not based in this box alone. The covenant was a promise between you and me. So when the covenant was taken away, the, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, it's not an idol. It doesn't manifest. God's not manifested in it. The covenant did not end. The tabernacle continue to hold ceremonies and make offerings as if the Ark of the Covenant was still there. God's room was still there. 
God continued to watch over, continued to bless. This time, you know, Samuel starts to grow into the judge that he will be. Not only the, the judge, but he will be the greatest of judges. But during this time, while they, the Philistines think they have conquered this, this Israelite God, they discover they have not. They put the, the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon, and they come in the next day, and Dagon is lying on the ground. Mind you, as I said, idols tended to be well-tethered or stapled down so that you could not move them easily. But no, they came in and there was Dagon lying on the ground. Weird. They set him back up. Came in the next morning. Dagon's on the ground again before the ark. Okay, this is getting really weird. Set it up again. Come in the next morning. Dagon's torso is on the ground before the ark. The head and the hands have both been removed, and they're lying off somewhere else. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a pretty ill omen, right? <laughs> hey, that, that's not a good thing to come into. And so they, they send it over to, to another town, and all of a sudden, this town has an outbreak of rats. Rats and everything, eating all the food. They send it off to another place, and they have an outbreak of tumors. We're told it's probably bubonic plague, which, yeah. And they send it to, in total, five cities. First, the city with Dagon, and then rats, and then tumors, and then rats and tumors, and then tumors and rats. Not a great situation. For seven months... The Ark of the Covenant is moving around, just making everyone's life miserable until finally they said, oh, you know what, let's, let's send the Ark of the Covenant back and, and send gold with it so hopefully their God will, will forgive us. This, this commandment, I think, in many ways, wasn't, is not only simply about you know, God being a jealous God and this rule of... of um, you know, just generally against idolatry. But it's a rule of protection. Reminding us that our faith, our tradition, our, our connection with God can never be taken away by another person. Idols are easy to move. They're easy to change. They're easy to steal. But our relationship with God isn't. It's inside us. It's something that only we can give away. And that reminds me of that, that story out of Matthew 7, I think it is. It's either Matthew 7, 6 or Matthew 6, 7. I can't remember. Um, where, where Jesus says, do not, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls before swine, for they will, and I'm just going to read it now, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. A reminder that what we take from ourselves, those things that we hold holy, hold true, our faith, our tradition, our belief in God, that the only person who can destroy those, to injure those, are ourselves. We have the choice whether we give them to others that they would make fun of it or trample on it or whatnot, or we can hold true to it and not open it up that way. It is, yeah. 
We are the ones that choose what to do with our faith. And this gives our faith the ability to grow. See, stone and metal are static. They do not change, but living faith is like a tree. A tree can be planted pretty much anywhere. It can wrap itself around stones and break them open. It can take that which we thought was an obstacle and instead turn it into nutrition for itself. It can make our souls stronger. This commandment isn't simply a prohibition. It is a release. It is a release into freedom in faith. A release to step away from the bounds of this earth, the, bounds of, the boundaries of stone and metal and plaster and paper and clay and whatever, and instead to embrace the freedom within the spirit. So have we done that? Have we lived into this freedom or did we just simply adopt new idols? This is the part where I go into all those idols that, of course, you, we've adopted. Now, I'm not saying any of you in specific, but I mean we as a culture. And you all know this. You know, let me see. I've got, I've got money. Beware of money. It's an easy trap to fall into. It, it goes from something we need for everyday living, the key to living in a safe place, to having enough food. It goes from being the means by which we live into the ends for which we live. There's some fun word play. But we all knew that, right? We all knew money was the easy one. I mean, even Jesus said, you know, watch out for money. Okay. There, there's nationalism or jingoism. It's good to love your country, to be a patriot. But that love should always be subservient to our faith first and not the other way around. We are servants of the living God and the creator of all, not the God that favors one group over another. There's, you know, the, the other idols, our jobs. How often do we raise our jobs up? They become the center of our lives. You know, uh, maybe our houses, our properties, cars, ambitions, favorite show, politics. So many potential idols in this world Things that we can easily trip over. Reasons we have to constantly kind of check in on ourselves. However, I'm not really worried about those idols. Do you know why? Because we talk about them all the time. I mean, I, how often do I, flipping through like a Facebook, you see a meme uh, or and just conversation. How many pastors have you heard got up there, up here, and they, they talked about you know warning against the idols of this world? How many books? How obvious is it from the Bible? Okay, these are easy idols. I don't have to tell you all about them. You know them. I'm more worried about the idols we don't recognize. And there's one in the Bible. It's named Nehushtan. Nehushtan. Yeah, I'll go with that. You probably never heard of it because it only makes two appearances in the Bible and it's only called Nehushtan the second time and that's in 2 Kings when it's destroyed. If you want to look in your Bible, it's 2 Kings uh, chapter 18. I think it's the first section of that. So 
Hezekiah becomes the king. Hezekiah is one of the great kings of Judah. He, he does all these great things. You know, he repels uh, invading armies, and he, he destroys a lot of idolatry and brings people back. It's, it's a renaissance. He is a second David kind of image. Anyway, as he's doing it, he goes into the temple and he destroys the, the pole of Asherah that someone had set up and, you know, this other idol that someone... Uh, and then he goes in and he takes the Neshutin and he walks out and he smashes it. Now, Neshutin, Neshutin, translate as the, the word either sounds like the word for brass or snake. It's just one of those that fits both. So it means the great brass or the great snake. And if all of a sudden you're going, wait, brass, snake, this sounds familiar. Yes, because the other time it's mentioned is back in numbers. The people were grumbling. Surprise, people in that part of the story, grumbling never happens, right? No. Okay, they grumbled, and so God sent snakes. In the words of Indiana Jones, why did it have to be snakes? Anyway, lots of people get bit. They're all poisoned. People are dying left and right. They pray out to God, Lord, why? Please save us. And God goes, Moses, I want you to make a snake. I want you to make it out of brass, put it up on a pole, and set it up in the air, and everyone who looks at it will be healed. I do have to remind you, this is a God who said not long before not to make images. But anyway, God told him to do this. So he did it, and he set it up, and the people looked at it, and they were healed from their bites. Apparently, it became a thing. Now, from there, for the next 700 years, the Nehushtan is never mentioned. But archaeology actually has found several shrines throughout what it was ancient Israel, where there appears this image of this brass snake. It seems to have become a subcult within Hebrew tradition, where people would worship God through this snake. Well, maybe, maybe the, the miracle kept working. Be like out working in the field that day. Crap, I've got an asp hanging off my arm. And you go up to the temple. I'm like, hey, I got bit. And he's like, one second. He goes off in the broom closet. He pulls out the Nehushtan and goes, ah! And the snake falls off and you feel great. That has to be a really mad stake if he held up all the way from the fields to the temple. But anyway, I do like to get the idea that he, he's got the Nehushtan in the broom closet. Yeah. In the 700 years since, a cult had risen around this gift from God. A cult had risen up around. An idolatrous cult had risen up around a gift from God. People started by worshiping the God who made the miracle happen through this statue. To worshiping the miracle that happened through this statue, to worshiping the statue. So much so that when Hezekiah came, and Hezekiah knows the history. He knows where this thing came from. He knows that this is a work from the hands of Moses. He deems it too dangerous to keep. Not even to set aside and some like, you know, let's bury it. It was Moses's after all. No, he destroys it. 
I don't know if he really went in and just smashed it or not. I like to get the image that he smashed it and it may, it was like a barrier against all the snakes and all of a sudden the snakes moved in. Anyway. It only took 700 years for that to happen. That's a blink in time. You know, okay, so yeah, and then the United States hasn't been around for anywhere near as long. Uh, my, my, my ancestors moved here, I think it was 1713, so we've been here for a little over 300 years, and that's barely anything. I think the only one here who can rightfully claim to really be here a long time is probably Roger. <laughs> 700 years is not long at all. Christianity's been around 2,000 years. What have we done? Have we taken some of the gifts of God and made them idols? I think we have. We've done that a lot, actually. Some have done it worse than others, I think. There are, are traditions that you know, believe that this painting, you know, the icons are, are holier than, you know, they have a piece of God within them and they ought to be worshipped. Or they may have relics. Those are the easy ones to kind of point to. I'm afraid I've got the other two right behind me. When do we forget? When did we forget that the cross and the Bible are tools. You know, there's a reason the cross is empty. There's a reason we do not put Christ upon the cross because the point of the cross is not Jesus' death. It's what it led to. It led to an opening between us and God. The cross is empty. Jesus is not upon the cross because Jesus is already in heaven making the bridge between us and the divine. We, we often call the Bible, the Bible is the holy word of God. And we can use that, it's fine. But it's not the logos. The logos, the word of God. You know, all capital letters, logos. There's only one logos, and that's Jesus the embodiment of God. These are tools. These are tools that lead us closer to Jesus. These are tools that lead us closer to God. These are tools that make the connection between the human and the divine. But they themselves are not. The Ark of the Covenant was a tool, a place of connection between the mundane and the divine, but the Ark of the Covenant itself was not divine. So what does it mean when we make this difference, when we name it aloud? Well, that's dangerous. I'm not going to just leave it hanging open. <laughs> I could, but I'm not. Because I think there's lots of possibilities, and I, but it's, it's too big. It's too big. We've got to put some, some levels on it to understand it. 
So during the, um, the Reformation, there was, of course, the belief that called sola scriptura, you know, only by scripture. Uh, we no longer need the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. We don't need the priests. We live by scripture alone. Well, that's a problem when the scriptures are in Latin and Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, but of course Latin, because who here reads Latin? No? No? Okay, anyone here read German? No? I mean, that, that's where it happened in Germany. So, okay, so they made, they were like, well, we need to make it available to read for people to understand. And Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the guy who nailed the 99 Theses, who began the Reformation, thought it was a bad idea to publish the Bible in German for everyone to read. Because it's dangerous. When people start reading the Bible, it's dangerous. Because you know what is in there? There's a lot of stuff in there. Have you read your Bible? I'm talking to the choir, I know. Literally and figuratively, because the choir is still out there. They're not up here yet. When you start encountering the scriptures and reading through them, you discover this God who kind of breaks all these human rules. This God who does not worry about our economy. This God who does not worry about our governmental systems. This God who is concerned about the people that most everyone else is not concerned about. This God who offers, un, offers grace and forgiveness on such a scale that it breaks down our entire judicial system if we were to attempt to grasp it. This God who tells us that this life and everything here is impermanent. It will come to an end, but there is something far greater on the other side. When we look at the Bible and we look at the cross, we look at the church in general and say, they are but tools. We strip away all those protections we've built. We strip the way. It's like taking the Bible and saying, it's no longer in Latin, it's in English. And every person can read it and make their own decisions and all that. All the protections are gone. We have shut off the nightlight. And we find ourselves in a dark space that we have no idea how far out it goes in every direction. And it's incredibly scary. We cannot pray to the Bible. We cannot pray to the cross. But they can lead us to the one we're praying to. What does this mean in everyday life? Probably nothing. I don't expect any of you to be cruel to your Bibles tomorrow. I wouldn't recommend it. As someone who doesn't even like to write in their books, I can tell you my Bibles are incredibly clean looking, though worse for wear on their spines because I have them opened up a lot and put things on it to keep it open while I'm writing. You're not supposed to do that. I don't expect you to break your cross. Don't do that. There's no point. But remember, they are only tools and symbols. Do not be caught up in 
keeping him pristine. Your Bible should be pretty broken in. Your cross is probably should be pretty worn. Okay, and most of us don't carry crosses around every day with us, and that's fine. But maybe remember that they are the windows to God, but they do not explain all of who God is. If that was the case, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit, right? If that was the case, we didn't need Jesus. So, do not make yourself an image. Do not get drawn down into overly trusting anything that comes through the work of humans. The Bible is different. It is God-breathed. But the fact that I like to bring up Greek words in here a lot, I should have told you by this point that making it go from the language of the ancients to the language of today is tricky at best. So struggle with it. And realize that you got the training wheels off and that's okay. For while you may be in the, in the dark room without a nightlight, you've got a better light in right there to pray. There's no such thing as a sacred cow in Christianity. Nothing that we have to hold on to because there's nothing like that in our faith that can be taken away. So go out. Go out in the freedom and the unsurety of what it means to worship a God who has no idols. To worship a God who alone exists beyond, to worship a God who lives within. Go and be free, brothers and sisters. Amen.